The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a complement to the Numinous School, an online intuition development course for people who want their self awareness to serve a greater good. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and this week my guest is Josiah Newfeld, and we're talking about his interesting experiences growing up the child of Mennonite missionaries in West Africa. I connected with Josiah in person at my home in Victoria, BC. So Josiah, can you tell me a little bit about Mennonites and their history? Yes. Um, now, I'm not a Mennonite historian, so <laughs> I'll tell the history as, as, I, as I know it and remember it, but there may be a few, uh, few mistakes in here. Mennonites are uh, a branch of, of uh, Protestants from Protestant Christianity that branched off during the, the Reformation. They started with, with a Dutch man named Menno Simons, an ex-priest who, who believed some things that were, you know, radical at the time that, that all, all believers had access to God, not just priests, um, pacifism. He, he believed in, in nonviolence that, that Christians could not raise their hands in violence against others and, and a variety of other things. And, and so, uh, Menno Simons started this, this branch of, of Christianity that was radical and was considered a threat to the to the church slash state of the time um and so mennonites originated in the netherlands and and migrated to different parts of europe seeking more hospitable climates hospitable you know nations that would that would let them live in peace um and and do their do their work a lot of them were were farmers um so my there were very. I'm not sure about all the different streams of Mennonites where they went to in Europe. I know there's German Mennonites and Swiss Mennonites. My particular um, Mennonite ancestors migrated to Russia, and then to uh, what's now the what's now Ukraine. Um, then at the time it was Prussia. They were offered, you know, land by the mm. the the ruler at the time and said and told they could they could live in peace there. And uh, eventually during uh, Soviet during the era of the Soviet Union, the Mennonites again were experiencing um, persecution. They were being forced to, they were being drafted into the into the army, and they they wanted to find a place that they could you know live their lives, farm their land, and and worship the way they wanted to, in peace. And so they Mennonites um, le- left Russia left. Ukraine and and traveled to some settled colonies in in South America, Mexico, and some came to the U.S. and Canada. My particular um, ancestors were uh, at this point Mennonites had formed various branches and denominations, and mine were a more conservative branch of Mennonites. They came to Manitoba. The Manitoba the the uh, Dominion of Canada had just been formed, I believe, and so they were looking for people to farmers to come occupy and settle the land in in Manitoba, and um, and so they offered they offered Mennonites 
a lot of land for very little money and promised them that they could build their own communities and you know educate their own their own children and they wouldn't have to join the military if they didn't want to and so they were they were assigned these parcels of land which the the Canadian government had just finished clearing of the indigenous inhabitants by through uh, treaties that unfair treaties and you know military action so the Mennonites came to this this beautiful farmland of the prairies my Mennonite I guess these would have been my great-grandparents mm. um, and it looked like empty land to them it had recently <laughs> been emptied to to make I mean not completely emptied but the the uh, Cree and Ojibwe and Métis inhabitants had been forced off in a variety of ways and so the Mennonites were given given farmland and so the Mennonites my Mennonite ancestors they were all farmers they given land to to grow crops on and they they grew their crops and they they farmed and they they were hard workers mm -hmm. they they had churches and the churches were responsible to care for the community so the if there was somebody who was poor in the community it was the churches people the, the Mennonites would give money to the church their their tithe and that money would be used to help out whoever was in need in the community so it all you know was all part of their and and they lived quiet quiet lives they tried not to get involved in in um politics during the the world wars there were many conscientious objectors among them mm. most mennonites were conscientious objectors they didn't uh they served in in logging camps and various other things to avoid mm -hmm. going to war. So the early history certainly sounds very similar to Quakers mm -hmm. in the sense that, that those um, uh, early Christian uh, rebels mm -hmm. who felt that God or that of God was within every person mm -hmm. and uh, wanted to dispel with, you know, the, the hierarchy and bureaucracy mm -hmm. of the church. That sounds very similar. Mm -hmm. And then the um, uh, idea of... Uh, pacifism, nonviolence, social justice. Mm -hmm. Those are very similar threads. But uh, this idea of staying out of politics is mm -hmm. very interesting considering mm -hmm. the Mennonites um, in, in sort of a divergent path from Quakers. Mennonites are evangelical or there are conservative evangelical Mennonite denominations. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm curious about how that has affected you mm -hmm. <laughs> how has that um formed your life because you grew up half your life in burkina faso in west africa which let's just kind of orient ourselves uh, i haven't seen a map for a while but i'm imagining that it's a relatively small country and that it's sort of south of the sahara and kind of northwest of like Nigeria is that right like if there's kind of a shoulder mm -hmm. and an armpit they're just kind of in the shoulder of Africa is that right yeah that's okay. correct they're surrounded by just south of the Sahara Desert and north of um Ivory Coast Ghana Togo Benin those countries are all just south of Burkina Faso okay so the ones that are all kind of um skinny and go down to the mm -hmm. ocean okay correct. so Burkina yeah. Faso is landlocked and just above sort of yes. between the, those countries and the Sahara mm -hmm. so tell me about that how how you grew up in mm -hmm. in West Africa um, as with your parents being mm -hmm. evangelical mm -hmm. yeah so there's evangelical Mennonites I did I'm not sure about how exactly the Mennonites went from 
or this branch of Mennonites went from being um, quiet agrarians to becoming more evangelical. But but I know that that my parents were part of an are still part of an evangelical Mennonite um, church that sends missionaries to various parts of the world. So they um, they believe that God had called them to West Africa to to uh, my dad's a, a linguist, so his he felt his calling was to translate the Bible. They they moved to to Burkina Faso when I was about three years old, and um, with the goal of of learning this this very small language that maybe ten thousand people in Burkina Faso speak. It was a language that had, was unwritten. Mm. My my father's job was to to create figure out a way to write it and um, to design a, an alphabet and translate the Bible and with the goal of starting a Christian church in this in this village. Um, the, the people of Burkina Faso are largely Muslim. I can't remember the exact percentages, but the, the majority of, of Burkina Bay people are Muslim. And then there's also various Christian denominations and and people who um, follow the indigenous spirituality of of West Africa, and so the 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 Islam that that exists in in West Africa is not, is not nearly as as uh, strict, I guess one could say, as sort of Saudi Arabian <clears throat> Islam. It's it's sort of a folk Islam, almost mm. the way uh, Catholic Christianity in in uh, Latin America sort of took on hmm. elements of indigenous beliefs. Um, so the village that my parents moved to, most of the people in that village would call themselves Muslim, but they're not strictly observant hmm. Muslims. What um, was it like growing up in that village? Hmm. I, I, now that you're talking about it, I'm thinking of um, the different landscape and the mm -hmm. food and the smells and the sounds and the music what was that like growing up in in africa oh it was it was uh it was normal to me <laughs> <laughs> i we, we lived in this in this uh little village i would eat the pe people would people eat this porridge made of millet or sorghum with various leaf or meat sauces that's kind of the staple um most of the people in the village lived in small houses made of mud bricks with grass roofs. Some of the more wealthy ones had cinder block with tin roofs. I would play with my friends. When we were small, we would catch fish in the river and collect mangoes when the big mango trucks came through to gather mangoes. Um, when, when I grew a little older, then I started going to uh, a boarding school for missionary children. So then I, that was outside of the village in a, in a neighboring town. But uh, yeah, I remember doing lots of things with my friends in the village. I also remember getting bitten by a lot of insects, my <laughs> tender skin, and uh, getting a lot of sunburns and uh, crying because of the spicy food. But uh, and also not being able to do any of the kind of work that my my friends could do. They most of the villages, most of the people in the village are subsistence farmers, so they. Mm cultivate their own fields with hand tools there weren't even very many uh plows with with oxen to pull them those exist but they're not very not very common so most people cultivated their own tool fields with hand tools and 
and I would help my friends in the fields, but but I was pretty uh, I was pretty pretty pathetic at it. <laughs> so it was an integrated village. Like your family was was you know what was their house like? What were their neighbors mm-hmm. like? Our house was much bigger than any other house in the village. It was a huge. By, by village standards, we were millionaires, mm. um, and I didn't realize until we came to Canada to visit family that we were actually, you know, poor by Canadian standards. Because in the village, I felt like a, a millionaire. We had this giant house with cinder blocks and a huge tin roof that, with wooden rafters, a, a team of American con- carpenters came to our <laughs> village to build the roof for us because houses didn't like that didn't exist in in that part of Burkina Faso we had a couple of solar panels on the roof that powered some electric lights mm. we had a 45 gallon drum of water on the roof we'd pump up water from our well and and it would create a little bit of running water for a shower and a, a kitchen sink i mean it sounds rudimentary probably but but it was you know people in the village had never seen solar panels before or wow or yeah of course I mean, they would see electric lights when they went to the bigger towns that had the electricity, but, but yeah, there were no phone lines or electricity in the village. So the situation I found myself in is one where I was, you know, acutely conscious of this huge socioeconomic divide between me and my friends whom I played with and interacted with every day. And uh, that was something I grew up completely conscious of. Mm. Um and, and it, what about the spirituality part then? Because mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you could pick up, obviously as a child, y- y- you are innocent to mm-hmm. the politics mm-hmm. uh, that were occurring mm-hmm. and that your family really would have been instigating. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if you ever got the sense from, say, the parents of your friends who mm-hmm. might have been practicing an indigenous spirituality, mm-hmm. you know, revering their ancestors and and uh, having a much more nature-based approach mm-hmm. to ritual and all of those things. Did you ever pick up any resentment or anything like that? Or were they quite uh, taken by the message of Christianity that your parents were bringing? The way my parents went about their, their project, um, they didn't walk into the village and start preaching. They, mm-hmm. um, they came into, their, their strategy was to, to come into the village, learn, spend a number of years learning the language, get to know people, translate the Bible, and then start presenting the translated stories from the Bible to the villagers in and kind of in a more organic kind of way um it was it was clear to everyone that we were christian there was no secret about that but people didn't my parents weren't necessarily very didn't come and say we've come here to change your religion they Mm. they said we've come to live here and and translate translate the christian scriptures um and the the Burkina Faso Christians and Muslims and and people who follow indigenous religions live side by side and there's sort of an attitude of I follow my faith and you follow yours and we respect one another mm-hmm. um, in the village I would go in and celebrate um, you know Ramadan at the at the festival at the end of the month of fasting with my friends I would go and walk around the village with them and eat eat with them and collect money with like the children did so the expectation was that i would join them in their activities and they would come and and join um 
they would come over on you know Easter or Christmas and say, "Well, where's the party? You know, this is your <laughs> this is your your party." So I, I didn't feel I didn't encounter um, really resentment or not that I remember really any negativity. Now I don't know what people talked about in when I wasn't there. There was there's a lot of outward respect in in West African culture. Um, I I grew up with with this i was taught that indigenous spirituality was was bad it was evil that it, there was there was two sources of of uh supernatural power in the world either god or satan essentially and so anything that wasn't part of christianity that didn't fit under the umbrella of christianity was essentially evil mm. um now at the same time my parents were quite interested in in learning learning things from West African people that they lived among, like such as their respect for, for elders. And, and, um, so there are a lot of, at, my parents both taught me both to sort of be interested and respect other culture. But at the same time, there was another current of, of teaching that, that when I look back on it now, I see it as very colonial. Um, this idea that our religion is better than yours. Our understanding of God is more true than yours. You know, I, I grew up with, I, I took that for granted growing up, mm. growing up. I was, that's what I was taught. It was only as a, I, as a, you know, a teenager as a, or as an adult that I started to, to question that. And, and because, because it was so, um, the lens that I was given was so, was so, uh, um, polarized, I guess one could say that my mind wasn't open to considering the, the the wisdom of indigenous spirituality or or to look for those things i think that i mean i was i wasn't i didn't i wasn't interested in trying to convert my friends to christianity that wasn't what i was trying to do as a child i just wanted to have friends and somehow fit into this village and and uh be a normal person i think being a normal person and finding a niche for myself was my main preoccupation as a as a child so um but you know my parents would every night they would they would pray for the village that the people in the village would convert to christianity because ultimately that was their only hope that was what my parents believed that the only hope for people in this life and the next really was to was to become christian mm. so you spent the second half of your life in canada so mm -hmm. most of your adult years here mm -hmm. and you continue to be a seeker. So mm -hmm. now as an adult that you're trying to still belong and mm -hmm. find out where you fit in and make your nest, mm -hmm. where do you find your spiritual home right mm -hmm. now? Where are you on your spiritual path? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's, it's not always easy for me to pinpoint where I am on my spiritual path because I feel as though, as though that changes from day to day or from hour to hour, depending on my mood or what I'm reading or who I'm interacting with or what I'm thinking about. But I do, I do remember, um, if I think about how I've, my perspective of the world has evolved, there were a couple of things that, that were like, um, linchpins. I remember the, the, the moment, I guess, when I stopped believing in hell or the, the idea that some people were saved and others were damned. That was kind of a, a, a turning point for me. Once that, you know, plank fell out of my belief system, then a whole lot of other things 
came fell after it and I started, how did that happen tell me about that moment it's it's hard it's hard to uh I, I think what contributed to to that is just I've, I've always been a person who's curious about other people and um as and I would listen to I would talk to people who weren't Christian and hear their their stories and um and rea- I think when I started to to really listen to people's spiritual stories and and realize that other people who were not Christian had had just as much um, depth of spiritual understanding of the world and and love of beauty and love of each other as Christians that I started to realize oh you know it's not some it's not an exclusive mm. thing and so I'm trying to think of some of the the examples I think I really only opened myself up to that possibility as in as a young adult living in Canada mm. I came to Canada when I was when I was 19 I started going to university in Winnipeg and um I remember meeting you know people first nations elders for example who would who would talk and and actually um understanding the relationship between colonialism and first nations people in canada and christianity and in indigenous um beliefs from first nations indigenous beliefs in canada as i understood that relationship i began to see um that helped me to understand what was going on in west africa in a in, in a in a way i saw the parallels and that i think that was part of what opened my opened my mind to um to the bigger picture I guess mm-hmm. so I'd love to know what are some of the aspects of Mennonite culture mm-hmm. and and that faith that you still really value and mm-hmm. incorporate into your own spiritual understanding mm-hmm. I really I really ad- there's a few things that I really um strongly identify with and when I look back at Mennonite history, Mennonites are part of the a group of Protestants called Anabaptists. Um, you know, Quakers are among them. Mm. They were shit disturbers, and I like that. <laughs> I like I like the fact that they challenged authority and and uh, hierarchy. Um, and then, of course, later on, they developed their own authorities and hierarchies. And I think that's a normal cycle that human organizations of all kinds go through. But um, you know, there's this 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 group, um, active group called Christian Peacemaker Teams. I don't know if you've heard of them. them. They're they're radicals. They they get involved in in you know Israel Palestine. Um, they get involved in in land conflicts with with uh, between Canadian government and First Nations groups, and they and they go where they're invited by okay. by a group. They don't just walk into a situation and try to solve the problem they're they're invited by by a group of people who feels like they usually in violent situations um and they're committed to non-violent action they're very open spiritually like you don't have to be a a practicing christian to be part of even though they're informed by christian ideas so there's a lot of mennonites i think i think mennonites started christian peacemaker teams and, and that to me embodies some of the spirit of of Anabaptism and and Mennonites that I'm that I'm still really inspired by. 
um, the nonviolence is really, I, f I find that really uh, inspiring and, uh, and needed in the mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. And what about the Muslim and the West African indigenous spirituality? Is there anything from that that you either still um, incorporate or you'd like to revisit or you're now interested in learning more about now that you have a different perspective on what mm -hmm. was happening there as you were growing up? As, as an adult, um, I started reading, I remember reading some writings by uh, uh, a Burkina Bay man. Uh, his name is Malidoma Somme, and he's, he's quite well known in the West. He's, he, he, he leads retreats, and he, I started reading his story of how he, as a child growing up in Burkina Faso, was, was taken by Jesuit priests to this forest, to a residential school, essentially. Very traumatic experience for him. And he came back to his village completely traumatized and the people of his village said, you need to go through the traditional initiation of our people to understand because you've lost touch with, with our people and our indigenous uh, beliefs. Reading his, his writings um, really were, were, were fascinating for me to read that as an adult and to see from, and to, and to hear someone explain, he writes in English. So, and English is my, my first language and the one I understand the best. And so, and so, uh, you know, reading his his articulation of his spirituality really made me realize some some of the the depth and complexity of of indigenous um, West African understanding of the world that that was so fascinating that I never that was never articulated or I never you know heard it articulated in that way as a child. Mm -hmm. um, he has a beautiful book about ritual and community mm -hmm. and talks about the lack of ritual in the West mm -hmm. is a contributing factor to um, mental illness, mm -hmm. uh, social dissociation and mm -hmm. the dissolution of family and mm -hmm. um, so many of our cultural institutions because mm -hmm. we lack mm -hmm. ritual. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful book. I'll make sure I put that in the show notes because mm -hmm. um, I, I really, really appreciate that mm -hmm. perspective. Mm -hmm. So... What would a spirituality that perfectly fit Josiah hmm. look like or feel like? Mm -hmm. I, there, there was something you, you said in one of our conversations earlier that, about the difference between things we, things we, um, I'm trying to remember exactly how it went, inherit or things we, the difference between things we can change and things we inherit I can't remember exactly mm -hmm. Yeah, the I was of that. talking about how you can uh, break a pattern, but you can't break a lineage. Right, you can break a pattern, but you can't break a lineage. There's things in my um, Mennonite and Anabaptist lineage that I feel are there because I've like I've inherited them, and I and I and I want to continue to be. I don't want to cut myself off from my roots because I feel like there, all over the world, people have different ways of understanding the divine and making sense of the world and connecting with their spiritual selves and i don't i don't think there's there's you know one way that's better than all the others but i feel as though it makes most sense for me to to find that within my own uh heritage in some way and now there's many things about you know many intellectual beliefs that come with the with the Mennonite 
Mennonite heritage that I, I just don't, that don't make sense to me or don't work for me anymore. But I also don't feel the, you know, belief doesn't matter to me quite as much. I, I think that belief is important. The things that we believe are important, you know, intellectually. They're important because they inform how we live, but, but um, you know, it's not, I no longer believe what I, I, I no longer believe that what we believe, you know, sends us to heaven or hell or, mm. or is the, is the key, key distinction between whether we are able to connect with our spiritual selves or with the source of beauty and, and goodness in the world. So, so intellectual belief is less important to me than it used to be, but so nevertheless, um, there are things in my, in my lineage that I feel are, are really valuable. And there are also patterns that I think it's important to break, um, mm. patterns of, of hierarchy and, and patriarchy and, and, uh, disconnect from the natural world, sort of a idea of you know, domination and control of the natural world. Those are patterns that I would be happy to help break. So, so somehow if I could, and I haven't quite found it yet, the, the, the perfect place where I, where I fit in, I think it would be a place that's rooted in some kind of tradition and ritual and practice with other people and community, but is open to the world and, and, um, and feels a lot of, you know, pain for the suffering of the world. Mm. I'm really inspired by the, the, this morning I went to a Quaker meeting with you and, mm -hmm. and we sat in silence and I, and I thought, uh, you know, I wish that, I wish that there was a group of Mennonites who would get together and just sit in silence the way the Quakers do mm. and not reject everything about their heritage, but maybe have a few, fewer words involved and just, um, and just be together and, mm -hmm. and not need to, to nail everything down. You're right. It sounds like, as you were saying earlier, that the shared belief is less important than the shared, uh, practice, practice mm -hmm. and, and space and, and having a, a community that can contain a lot of different ways of seeking that connection. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. that's you to, to bring, um, Islam into this. I think mm -hmm. Islam is a religion that's oriented around shared practices, mm. the practices of, of praying regularly. And, you know, the five pillars of Islam mm -hmm. are, are practices. They're not right. necessarily beliefs. They're, they're practices that, that bring the community together. And I mean, belief is important. It, it plays an important role, but, um, but, uh, I, I'm inspired by the what I've heard you say about about Quakers and, and the way that they don't all have to agree on everything. There's a certain kind of unity that can happen without all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're not bound by the shared mm -hmm. set of beliefs, but mm -hmm. the shared practice and the mm -hmm. shared processes mm -hmm. of being together. So my last question for you today, this one actually comes from the Proust questionnaire. It's a bit of a okay. tradition mm -hmm. on the Numinous podcast. What do you consider perfect happiness? Hmm. Perfect happiness. I mean, I could I could describe it in terms of a scenario. Uh, Do what yeah. would make me perfectly perfectly happy is sitting, you know, outside under a beautiful shady tree with my 
three-year-old son and my partner drinking tea and uh, reading a good book. I mean, that to me is the most beautiful day, but I experience happiness every day in, in completely different circumstances. There's sort of a, maybe, maybe an, uh, an absence of, of fear is a good, is a good place of happiness for me because when I'm not afraid or worried about the future or feeling, then I can just, you know, enjoy the, the beautiful things around me in the, mm-hmm. in the world. And I experience that on a, on a regular basis. Mm, good. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Mm. I've really enjoyed it. And mm. I think the idea of going outside and enjoying the sun with some tea right now is a really good idea. <laughs> well, the Thanks pleasure so to uh, speak to you. Interesting conversation with Josiah today. Food for thought, for sure. Today's show notes can be found on my website, carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Just click the link for the podcast tab in the upper right corner. That's where you'll also find the link to Maladoma Patrice Somay's book that I highly recommend. It's called Ritual, Power, Healing, and Community. I want to thank Josiah again for coming on the show and thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I'd appreciate your review on iTunes and please share it far and wide so it can reach more seekers like you. You never know who really needs to hear it right now. If you'd like to keep exploring the great mystery of life with me, you can go to my website, carmenspaniola.com, and click the link for The Numinous School, my online intuition development course. While you're there, sign up for my monthly email newsletter. You'll instantly receive a meditation download, and you'll get something free from me every month. Until next time, take care.